Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to episode 240 of the Family Medicine Rocks podcast for Sunday, February 12, 2012. On tonight's show, do doctors lie about medical mistakes? Last week's survey says yes. Family Medicine social media and health policy reports from last week. And also, thoughts on Whitney Houston. Coming up on episode 240 of the Family Medicine Rocks podcast. Starting right now, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> my good friend, my buddy, my best friend, my BFF, the president of the American Academy of Family Physicians, Dr. Glenn. Um, this year, one of my commitments and, and a great interest is to be more engaged with you as leaders, chapter leaders, uh, and, and our frontline membership. Uh, on, on Monday, a Twitter handle, I'm privileged to be the first one to hold uh, at AFP. Prez, P-R-E-Z, I already have 29 followers. I feel so proud. Um, I have a long, long way to go to catch up to uh, our current student board member, Kevin Bernstein, who has a little over 1,000, um, and our, uh, our king of family medicine social media, uh, Mike Sevilla, who has nearly 7,000 uh, members. about medicine and social media. This is the Family Medicine Rocks podcast. I'm your host. My name is Mike Savella, a family physician and social media enthusiast. What is this show about? I get that question a lot here on the show. I tell people this is a social media through the eyes of a family physician. You can check out the website at familymedicinerocks.com. And uh, shout out to all people following me on Twitter, all 8,379 people. Why, I don't know, but uh, very much appreciate that. Also, shout out to all 334 people who like the Facebook page. Thank you so much for that. And leave some comments on there on the Facebook page. Let me know how you like the show. Today is Sunday, February 12, 2012. It is 10 p.m. Eastern Time, 9 p.m. Central, and it feels like 9 degrees Fahrenheit here at Family Medicine Rocks World Headquarters. That's right. The uh, cold front came through this past weekend and uh, got some snow. But, hey, it's February. It's winter in Ohio here. So, come on. Stop whining about it, people. So, how has your weekend been going? It's been cold and uh, snowy here, but uh, otherwise has been uh, doing okay here. And it's it's been hard to believe. It's It's hard to believe that the Super Bowl – was just seven days ago. It feels like it's, it was like a year ago, doesn't it? It feels like such a long time. There's been so much uh, news stories that have happened in the past uh, seven days. Uh, coming up on tonight's show, going to just have some random topics. There's no guest 
Uh, but don't uh, switch off the show yet. <laughs> uh, I do have some uh, random topics tonight, including a study that was uh, released last week asking the question, do doctors lie? Uh, well, that's how the media was spinning it. Uh, so I'll have some thoughts about that. And also just on this past hour, the healthcare social media chat uh, asked the question, how can we better use audio and video for healthcare social media? I definitely have some thoughts on that. And uh, also our good friends at the American Academy of Family Physicians, they had a uh, meeting last week. And uh, I won't talk about that, but I'll talk about the uh, social media impact of that. Uh, and of course, the uh, passing of Whitney Houston, I'll be having some thoughts on that at the end of tonight's broadcast. But first, I do want to thank Blog Talk Radio for uh, having me a, a featured host here on the network. I've been a social media hobbyist since 2005. And if you're curious, yes, I am a real doctor. I am a family physician here in full-time private practice, meaning I see patients five days a week in the hospital and in my office here in beautiful northeastern Ohio. And I uh, will take my break here. And after the break here, we'll be uh, talking about the study uh, last week. I believe it's from the Health Affairs Journal. Uh, that will be our first topic here uh, uh, this evening. So you're listening to the uh, Family Medicine Rocks podcast, the unofficial podcast of the Family Medicine Revolution. Just Google FM Revolution for more details. And also a member of the Proba Network of podcasts. You get there by going to ProMed Network. Dot com and we'll be right back. Media. This is the Family Medicine Rocks podcast on a cold Sunday night here in northeastern Ohio. So our first topic here uh, this evening, an interesting study uh, that uh, came out uh, from Health Affairs Journal uh, last week, and it's gotten a lot of uh, press, gotten a lot of attention in the past week. Uh, the uh, mainstream media spinning it to... Uh, get more readers and more clicks saying that doctors are liars. And uh, tonight I'll be uh, uh, responding or commenting on a specific article here. This is from CNN.com. This is from Saturday, February 11, 2012. The, the title is Dishonest Doctors, colon, Why Physicians Lie. This is written by Dr. Otis Webb Brawley the uh, chief medical officer from the American Cancer Society and uh, also author of the book, uh, How We Do Harm, A Doctor uh, Breaks Ranks About Being Sick in America. So I'm just going to read parts of this article and uh, can comment on them. Well, here, here are the story highlights. They, they have three bullet points here as the uh, highlights. First uh, bullet point here is survey published in Health Affairs shows one-third of doctors do do not 
share medical errors. Uh, results are unsettling, doctor says, but we should remember that physicians are human. Uh, doctors often try to soften the blow of prognosis by not giving all the negative details. So that's kind of the story highlight. So let me just start out with paragraph one here and read some of this and uh, give, give my uh, response to it. Dr. Brawley starts by this saying this, uh, the doctor-patient relationship is a complex one. It occurs at a stressful and busy time for both the patient and the doctor because it involves at least two humans. There are at least three versions of the conversation, the doctors, the patients, and the true version. A survey published this week in the journal Health Affairs reflects this complex relationship. They surveyed 1,891 physicians nationwide about how honest they were about the patients regarding their medical mistakes and a patient's prognosis. The survey found that although two-thirds of doctors agreed they should share serious medical errors with their patients, one-third did not completely agree. Nearly two-fifths of the respondents said they did not disclose their financial relationships with drug and device companies, and more than 55% of physicians say they often or sometimes describe the patient's prognosis in a more positive manner than the facts support. He goes on by saying, these results are unsettling. We want to think of medicine as an honorable profession and that people in it work with integrity. While we should be appalled that a doctor would deceive or lie to a patient, we should also look beyond the white coat for an explanation. While it's not a vindication that the physicians are human, they all have feelings and failings of humans. Please keep in mind, medical errors can be due to negligence, but they are often, more often, a failure of failure to analyze data appropriately. Many doctors' errors are simply a matter of bad luck. The doctor was not good enough that day. It would not have done better the day before or day after. Some bad, come, bad outcomes are not really the physician's fault. Some doctors do not admit the error out of fear of litigation, but my experience is that discomfort of addressing one's own failings or weakness is more commonly the reason for not coming forward. I'm going to stop right there. I'm going to repeat this here. Some doctors do not admit error out of fear of litigation, but my experience is that the discomfort of addressing one's own failings or weaknesses is more commonly the reason for not coming forward. Not the discomfort of addressing one's own failings or weakness. You know, I mean, um, I guess that might be correct. But the fear of litigation is, is, is real. The fear of litigation is there. The fear of litigation is something that a doctor has to learn to live with. It is a companion in their day. It is something that is always around you. It is something that is always present. It is always something that is there. Is it something that drives your decision-making during the day? Yes, sometimes it does. And why is that? Why is that? Because the fear of litigation, the fear of being sued is real. It is out there. There's a lot of talk out there. There's not a lot of data out there, but 
that doctors do order some tests because they're fear of litigation. There are some times information that is not shared because of fear of being sued, fear of litigation. This doctor continues, it is a normal human tendency not to want to admit an error. Confession is difficult, especially when you have to admit reasonably, or when you have to admit responsibility to the person you have hurt. In the case of a bad luck outcome, the physician may be unwilling to admit their lack of control. This is often due to a lack of communication during the consenting process when doctors explain the possible outcomes or side effects can lead to patient anger when things go badly. Lack of communication during the consenting process. Yeah, it's real. Sometimes there is not a complete communication during the consenting process. Sometimes um, it's hard to find what a definition of adequate communication during the consenting process is. Because when you're trying to explain what's going to happen, whether it's a procedure, when you try to explain things like side effects to medications, how complete is complete? Do you have to disclose? Do you have to reveal every single possible side effect, every single possible complication. Really? Do you have to do that? And if you don't, is that adequate consent? I have other people telling me, hey, if you tell me every single thing, you're just going to scare me. You're going to scare me and... I'm not going to want to go through this procedure. I don't, may not even want any kind of medication. I would rather have my condition untreated than have the possibility of 1% or less than 1% of a side effect or complication. I'd rather roll the dice and not get anything done than have the possibility of a medication or a procedure causing a problem. Is that good medicine? Does that fall into this study? This article continues. Ironically, when I have seen a doctor admit an error, the patient or family, patient's family is usually forgiving and rarely sues. That could be his observation. But there are a lot of uh, legislation around this country, something called the I'm sorry law, where doctors express being sorry for a complication or a side effect, but not have that as an admission of guilt in a court of law. It's called an I'm sorry law. Now, this doctor says, ironically, 
When I've seen that a doctor admits an error, the patient or patient's family is usually forgiving and rarely sues. Now, I mean, you know, patients have the legal right to bring litigation for days and weeks and months afterward, depending on what their state law says. So I'm not disputing this physician's observation. What he's observing is probably true, but has not been my experience in the people that I talk to. He continues, why would a doctor not be honest about a patient's disease or prognosis? This is likely because the doctors not all, are always best communicators. Medical explanations often defining some complicated things. This is difficult, and it's often easier to just not do it. Sometimes there's a tendency to simplify the point of not telling the truth. Let me say that again. Sometimes there's a tendency to simplify to a point of not telling the truth. So what is this doctor's definition of telling the truth? Explaining everything to the nth degree? Would that be his satisfaction everybody knows I mean you know there are certain patients that don't want to know all that that get more anxious as you get them more of that type of information it scares them so it's definitely a from a case by case basis on what you think the patient needs to know. That's what I think. This doctor goes on and saying, it's unfortunate that our medical system pays doctors handsomely to do procedures, but does not reimburse well for talking to counseling and spending time with the patients. That I agree with. Goes on by saying, in a normal office environment, a physician is often forced to see Four or more patients per hour, questions go unanswered or half-answered as the physician moves from room to room assessing the patient, reading a patient's history, lab research, documenting things, and looking things up. It is a rare private practice physician who can block extra time for a patient with special needs. This can be costly, what the article says. And the implication there is that, oh, well, the doctor is too greedy to take more time. No, that's not it. Because primary care physicians like me, we need to see that amount of patients to pay our bills. Because like he said, we don't do procedures that pay handsomely. We try to see as many patients as we can that we think can be safely seen and still try to give our patients good medical care, even very complicated patients. Now, his article goes on to say, we need to transform health care. This involves empowering the patient. Patients need to take an interest in their own health. I agree with that. Ask good questions and expect, if not demand, answers. I agree with that. 
Some patients will need advocates or navigators to help him. I agree with that. The transformation also involves more members of the medical profession coming to realize the meaning of the term profession. A profession is a group of people who put their own interests secondary to the interests of the people they serve. A profession is also a group that also educates and polices itself. Don't they call that the patient-centered medical home? I think so. He says, my greatest concern is that uh, many doctors and patients fail to comprehend just how complicated medicine can be. Agree. Even doctors fail to remember that medicine is a science and an art, often with unclear answers. There are things in medicine that are scientifically known and things that are unknown. The wise physician draws a distinction between the three. The unwise doctor often confuses what he believes with what he knows. These unwise doctors may not know that they are telling their patients the truth. End of article. So, I mean, most of this addresses the point that doctors sometimes do not reveal their medical errors. I was asked to give a quote this week uh, for MedCityNews.com, Brandon Glenn, their article from 2912. Here's the title. You'll love this title. Are more than 10% of doctors liars? Survey says yes. About 11% of doctors are knowingly lied to patients in the past year, according to a new survey published in Health Affairs. Then I gave him this quote here. Well, he, he introduces it here. Dr. Mike Savella, Youngstown, Ohio area family physician and social media enthusiast, said that doctors generally strive for an open communication with patients, but often there are gray areas. Here's my quote. When it comes to describing a patient's condition and prognosis, especially with complicated cases, sometimes it's difficult for the physician to make an exact assessment, I said. What many physicians do is give the best-case scenario and worst-case scenario and then their medical opinion. This is described as a patient's – is this describing patient's prognosis in a more positive manner than warranted? I guess people will have to decide on that. At the end of this article, he says, writing in the Incidental Economist Journal, someone named Aaron Carroll was not pleased with the results of the survey. Here's his quote. I applaud the honesty of those answering the survey, but we've got to do better. We cannot, as a profession, continue to think we are immune to conflicts of interest. We cannot, as a profession, not be truthful with those who entrust us with their care. We cannot, as a profession, fear potential accountability so much we must hide mistakes for our patients. So this will be an, a, a, an interesting debate that will continue to go on. I also agree that I definitely appreciate the honesty during this survey, but it was, you know, less than 2,000 surveyed. Be interesting to see how that that can be reproduced or, you know, what a future survey would show. But litigation, I mean, one of the big things here is litigation. I mean, another big thing that I didn't talk about during this is, is the disclosure, you know, in relation to pharmaceutical companies which was also addressed in the survey. Um, but that's all. I mean, that's, I think I'm, you know, talking 20 minutes on that. I think I've, I think I've flushed out all the stuff that I really want to talk about there. So 
why don't we take a little bit of a break here? And uh, after the break here, I just want to talk about the uh, this this uh, healthcare social media chat question for my friend here, uh, Dana Lewis here. How can we better use audio and video for healthcare social media? I will answer that question right after this. You're listening to the Family Medicine Rocks podcast on a Sunday night here on the Blog Talk Radio Network. My name is Mike Sabella. We'll be right back. Podcast. My name is Mike Sevilla. It is uh, 25 minutes past the hour. And uh, next topic here is uh, just uh, the last hour here, the healthcare social media chat, the uh, most uh, popular, in my opinion, Twitter chat in the uh, healthcare social media sphere. And uh, one of the questions was, uh, how can we better use audio and video for healthcare social media? And uh, during the discussion, uh, there's a lot of people saying, hey, you know, uh, people don't use uh, audio and video. You know, uh, you know, it's um, – we should uh, have a uh, – it should be like blogs. Uh, there should be some kind of uh, uh, vetting process. There should be some kind of stamp of approval. There should be some kind of aggregate, some kind of Pinterest uh, wall where we can put all the cool audio and video out there. Uh, which and I don't disagree with any of that. I really think when it comes to uh, to audio and video uh, that it is it is going to be the the future of healthcare social media. Um, I got a question during the chat from um, Anita Be- uh, Benninger from the uh, West Coast out there. Where I, uh, I met about a year and a half ago. And uh, she asked me, uh, hey, Mike, what are your metrics? How do you know that healthcare social media is going towards audio and video and less towards blogs? And I answered the question, I don't think blogs are going away. I mean, I think that's still as of this moment, this very second in healthcare social media, that is the uh, the core uh, of healthcare social media is the blog. Uh, but I think as time goes on, it's going to be shifting more towards audio and video, especially video. Why do, why do I see that? Uh, I told her I don't have any metrics. I just kind of uh, try to pay attention to what's going on in the main tech industry and, uh, and all the, the techie and geeky you know, blogs and podcasts and, and videos that I'm seeing is that you know, people are really keen on producing a lot more – audio and video they want to start producing more uh, real-time type of content I mean you see that during tonight's Grammys here you know and people are all over Twitter this evening Uh, people are also using Facebook during the Grammys uh, 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 broadcast here this evening you see that during sports events 
you see that during even broadcast television shows, people doing a little hashtag of, of that real-time content. How does that relate to audio and video? Well, I mean, it, you're seeing more and more, you know, platforms, you know, like Ustream, like Livestream, uh, those that give, you know, live video right on the spot. Um, and, you know, of course, you know, YouTube, there's discussions on YouTube, you know, that there, you know, there's a lot of junk on YouTube. Yes, there is a lot of junk on YouTube. But that is where the, that is where the audience is. That is where you're going to get your, your popularity. That's where you're going to get your hits there. And there was also discussion on other uh, video platforms like Vimeo. Vimeo is a good platform. I've used it for a while. Um, not so much now. Why? Because everybody's on YouTube. You know, it's like, you know, why do you use Twitter? Because uh, everybody's on Twitter. Why do you use Facebook? Because, you know, hundreds of millions of people are on Facebook. That's why you use that. Uh, but I'm seeing, you know, a little bit more use of audio and video links on things like Twitter and Facebook um, and Tumblr and a lot of those things. Uh, so it's not going to be, you know, in the next, you know, two to three years audio and video. You know, probably in the next five years, things are going to be slowly progressing that way. Uh, another thing that I discussed on the chat tonight is that, you know, production of audio and video content uh, is difficult. It takes a lot, lot more time uh, than it is to write a blog post or to write a simple tweet or to write a simple Facebook update. You know, to have a quality audio and video, it takes a lot of prep time. It takes a lot of uh, uh, pre-production time, it takes a lot of post-production time. Um, and uh, my good friend uh, uh, Christian Sinclair from the Kansas City area says, you know, the only things that he's seen are boring uh, two-person interviews. And he's obviously seen uh, <laughs> clips of this show because that's what I do a lot of. The, you know, the, the interview shows, you know, the, those are what I've seen are the most popular, and what he is calling pretty boring, which I don't dispute that. Um, but, you know, it's just interactions, interactions, live interactions, live on tape interactions with audio and video, you know, that's going to be coming more and more along. Um, and that's kind of why I am doing this is just to try to experiment with this, with this technology of audio and video. And I have to tell you, it does take a lot of my time. It does take a lot of my time to, to plan for, you know, these type of broadcasts to, um, you know, for the video part, you know, I do all the editing myself. I do all the uploading myself. Not that I want people to feel sorry for me or anything like that, but, you know, to do really good audio and video, uh, which I don't do, but I've seen, uh, it does take a lot of time. This Block Talk radio platform is very good in that, you know, it does a lot of the work for me. I mean, I pay for that. It's not a free service here for the, you know, for the tier um, that I am at the premium tier, uh, but they do a lot of the stuff here for me, you know, as far as processing the video, you know, putting it on iTunes, um, having an RSS feed, all the stuff that I would probably would have to do myself if I would have to do my own little audio podcast. So I think the future is bright for audio and video. I think we're still a few years away uh, as far as it becoming more mainstream in healthcare social media. But there are people out there, you know, on the cutting edge, you know, like, like ZDog MD. Uh, if you, if you haven't checked him out, he's a, a pretty good, uh, 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 person that uses video and entertainment, um, in healthcare social media has very entertaining videos. 
one including uh, talking about hospitalists, one talking about pharma. Uh, so people like that are, are going to be on the cutting edge out there and showing us the potential of using things like audio and video in the healthcare social media. I'm probably forgetting a lot of other um, people out there that are using that. If, if you have suggestions out there or if you have recommendations or people who are doing really good healthcare social media, please forward them my way at fanmedicinerocks.com. Uh, uh, I'm always interested in seeing who's out there on the cutting edge, especially when it comes to audio and video um, in healthcare social media. Uh, so I'm going to take another break here, and I'm going to be switching gears here to the uh, uh, family medicine revolution segment of the show and uh, uh, some interesting things that have happened uh, in the past uh, few days out there in the Kansas City area when it comes to uh, uh, social media and uh, family medicine, family medicine revolution. Uh, we'll take a little bit of a break, and we will continue right here on the Family Medicine Rocks podcast on the Sunday night here on the Block Tower Radio Network. My name is Mike Sabella. We'll be right back. to the Family Medicine Rocks podcast right here on Blog Talk Radio. And uh, next topic here is having to do with family medicine, my good friends in family medicine. This is the Family Medicine Rocks podcast, so we're talking about uh, family medicine here. And uh, shout out to everybody who's listening to me live here. I see you out there. Uh, I don't have the chat room open here uh, this evening. Uh, but, uh, hey, thank you for joining me live. And, of course, uh, uh, thanks for everybody for listening to the show after the show. Uh, on the archived uh, podcast. So thank you so much for that. Uh, so last week in Kansas City uh, was the American Academy of Family Physicians. They had their their uh, committee meetings, their winter committee meetings um, out in the Kansas City area. This is the first time that they've had that in a number of years. So they haven't had that for a while because of budgetary reasons. Uh, but I think it's great that uh, they have their, uh, their committees uh, uh, meeting more than once a year uh, in person. Uh, so that's uh, very cool. And uh, something that they tried to do last week, which I think went off pretty well, is they tried to hashtag the thing. And the uh, hashtag was AAFPWC, meaning winter cluster, meaning winter committee meetings. Uh, so it's, it was the usual suspects out there uh, tweeting out there during the meeting. Uh, you can go to Twitter.com and uh, just search for the hashtag there, AAFPWC, and you can see the usual suspects out there. Uh, tweeting out the meeting, very much appreciate that. But uh, yeah, they're, they're they're those people. They're they're trying to get more people to to get out there. And uh, I did see at least a couple people, at least one resident out there who uh, was just signed up for uh, Twitter during the meeting. Uh, so that is very cool. Uh, but um, the uh, we got a couple tweets uh, from the AFP president uh, himself, and uh, one of his uh, well, actually, it wasn't a tweet. It was more on its on his Facebook page. 
The says here the AFP Winter Cluster Commission meetings underway in Kansas City. Dedicated family physicians contributing uh, from their particular areas of interest and expertise to advance the work of our academy. Their hard work is related to the board for consideration and action. Many thanks to all of the commission members, past and present, for all of your efforts. Your academy and fellow family physicians are grateful. And uh, you remember a couple weeks ago, uh, my good friend uh, Kevin Bernstein was on the show, and we got to reminisce a little bit about uh, those meetings. And uh, he was there as well last week, but I was not. I hope to be back there. Uh, Maybe I'll apply for a commission appointment uh, next year. But it's always exciting. There's always a lot of energy during that uh, those meetings. There, you get to meet a lot of great people, a lot of new people. Got to meet uh, the uh, resident students going to that meeting. They always bring a lot of energy there, and uh, uh, it's great. It's great seeing uh, the academy at work. That's my academy dollars at work there, kids. Hope you uh, lived it up. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, but uh, it was good. So so uh, so that was kind of the the first big uh, AFP meeting of, of the of the year. So they had their hashtag there. So uh, hopefully that momentum will continue through the uh, next uh, AFP meetings through the rest of the year. Another update I want to give uh, people about is. Uh, something I'll probably be talking about at the end of this month. Uh, It is the Medicare Sustainable Growth Rate Formula, SGR. I talked about that uh, on my blog at the end of December when uh, the the last crisis was going to be happening, when uh, uh, Medicare rates for physicians were going to be cut uh, 20 plus percent, or was it 30 plus percent? I forget what it was. Uh, so they were able to push back the deadline to the end of this month, to the end of February. So there's a, a blog post here uh, from the AFP Leader Voices blog from Friday, February 3rd. The title is Physician Groups Unite Behind SGR Message to Congress. I'm going to read part of this here. The AFP and other uh, physician groups are working together to keep pressure on lawmakers to repeal the sustainable growth rate formula. Representatives from all kinds of medical organizations uh, met along with AAFP uh, during a January 31st visit to Capitol Hill. It was the first time the nation's four largest medical specialty groups representing physicians who care for uh, Medicare patients converged on Washington with a unified message. It was a powerful statement that these four uh, uh, desperate, disparate, I don't want to say desperate, it's not desperate, uh, disparate groups, despite their differences, are united against the broken Medicare payment system. Together, we represent more than 400,000 physicians. So today is the February 12th, so you'll probably hear more and more of this in the next uh, few weeks. Um, What's also related to this uh, is, uh, you know, on the main uh, political news uh, that the uh, president is going to be, uh, you know, um, asking to have. Uh, uh, <laughs> I forget. I forget what the main political issue is now, because it is all. It is all in my head. <laughs> I believe it's the it's the uh, pay- payroll tax extension. I believe is is what the main political thing is, but this. SGR, Medicare thing, is lumped into that. Uh, I have to get my political facts straight before I start blogging about it again. Uh, but you're going to hear more and more you know, as the days go on until the end of this month, until February 29th. 
2012. Uh, you're going to see more and more of this from all the medical organizations. I hope the physicians uh, start to uh, blog about this. I, heart, I hope they start to uh, not only blog about it, but, but talk to our colleagues about it. Uh, you know, talk to your congressional representatives about this Medicare sustainable growth rate formula, uh, because if the cuts go through, there's going to be major access problems in which uh, Medicare patients may not be able to see their physicians because uh, it may not be, you know, you know, cost worthy for them to see Medicare patients. I know people are going to say, hey, you know, doctors are being, you know, they're being, they're being selfish, they're being greedy by not seeing these patients, but you know, I mean, let me tell you, you're getting a 25 or 35% cut in your salary. You know, I mean, how, how are you going to pay the bills? How are you going to pay the people that work for you? You know, I mean, how are you going to keep the phones going? How are you going to keep the lights going? How are you going to keep, you know, forget about, you know, the big medical expenses as far as, you know, health care insurance for your employees, your your liability, your malpractice insurance, your utilities, all that kind of stuff. Um, it, it's going to be a major problem in this country, and 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 the more that that Congress keeps putting this off, the the the, the bigger bigger problem is going to be down the road. So I'll be talking about this probably more in the next uh, you know few weeks as we get closer to that uh, February 29th deadline. And as I predict before, as I predicted in December, uh, I'm going to predict it's going to come down again to the 11th hour. Where they come up with some kind of deal. Hopefully, it'll be a permanent deal, but I think it's going to be another band-aid fix, uh, and then we're going to have more of a problem as this presidential election process starts to get more going here. Uh, all right, so I will take uh, one more break here, and um, then we will be ending the show here. The the last topic here I'll be talking about, you know, will be about uh, you know, Whitney Houston. I'll be, uh, you know, I heard about this uh, last night here, and I'll have, you know, more thoughts um, right after uh, this break. You're listening to the uh, Family Medicine Rocks podcast um, here on the uh, Blog Talk Radio Network. My name is Mike Sevilla. As soon as I can find a uh, <laughs> music here. Uh, I'll be able to uh, go to my break. <laughs> uh, let me uh, let me find uh, let me find we'll do this here. Bring it back. Uh, and 
Welcome back to the Fan Medicine Rocks podcast on the Sunday night here on the Blog Talk Radio Network. My name is Mike Sevilla. Uh, the last uh, topic here we have this uh, evening um, has to do with uh, Whitney Houston, uh, who was pronounced dead yesterday in Los Angeles, California, on the eve of the Grammys. The Grammys are going on right now as I speak. And uh, I'm uh, looking at my Twitter stream here, and uh, you know, people are doing a lot of commenting on the uh, Grammys uh, ceremonies uh, here. And uh, just follow on the uh, hashtag Grammys. But uh, you know, I mean, I was thinking about this last night as I was watching the coverage there, and uh, the, the things that that. Uh, that kind of stick out to me. I, I was looking at uh, Wikipedia last time, looking at Wikipedia right now, as far as you know the the, the discography, as the the uh, the timeline, as far as the uh, the number one hits, and uh, goes all the way back to uh, you know 1985 and 1986. You know, songs like "Saving All My Love for You," "How Will I Know," "Greatest Love of All." And that was, uh, you know, that was junior high and high school days. I know people are going to throw stuff at me saying, you know, come on. <laughs> but, uh, you know, back then, you know, I, I, I listened to a lot of pop music. I was, a, I was a pop music guy back then, still now. And, uh, you know, th- those were the songs that, um, you know, shaped my life that, uh, you know, that my friends were all listening to. You know, we all kind of listened to uh you know, pop music. You know, of course. You know, back then in high school and 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 uh, in grades in uh, junior high, you know, we knew people that that listened to all kinds of genres of music. But uh, the people I hung out with were mainly, uh, you know, mainly you know pop music. And uh, you know, I, I remember you know listening to uh, uh, you know Casey Kasem's American Top Forty and and, uh, and all the countdown shows and and uh, you know. Uh, Listening to and 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 tracking my favorite you know pop songs, popular songs, and um, you know the, the, those were the songs back then. You know that uh, that, that all the uh, you know, all, all, this was you know obviously before American Idol. This was before you know all these TV shows were on. But you know all, all the girls out there uh, were singing these Whitney Houston songs. You know and. Uh, it was, you know, it was just something that that we did, um, uh, you know, back in school. And I just remember all all the times back then, and, and what I was doing, and uh, you know, what what a different time that it is, you know, right now, you know, twenty five years ago, thirty years ago. Uh, it's just 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 a different time than it is now. And and you know, seeing all these news stories about Whitney Houston yesterday and today really kind of takes me back to a time of of, you know, junior high and high school and even college, you know, even the early nineties, you know, some of her songs uh back then and you know and, and I and I remember that uh uh that uh, uh national anthem in nineteen ninety one, the Super Bowl, uh where, you know, just a couple weeks before um, you know, the Gulf War began, Desert Storm, Saudi Arabia. Um, we were all, you know, listening and watching that Super Bowl game um, in January 1991. And, and you know, we remember seeing that 
you know, national anthem, you know, and back then, you know, there was no iTunes, there was no Twitter, there was no Facebook, you know, we, we, you know, we, we heard the song, we saw the song and we're like, wow, we have to go out to the music store and buy that song, you know, buy it on cassette. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, back then there was a tremendous amount of patriotism that was going on back then, you know, especially because of of the war that was going on that just started that very month. And, and that was the time, you know, back then, 1991, in the early 90s. Um, and, and that is, you know, one of the ways that Whitney Houston, you know, solidified herself in the culture. Uh, that that is, you know, one of the ways that 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 cemented her celebrity uh, of the uh, of the mid and late '80s and the early '90s. And you know, it just just takes me back. And, and as I'm watching this this Grammy ceremony tonight and watching all the news reports for the past uh, 24 hours, it just it just just reminds me, you know, just how how much life is 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 short, um, how much you just have to take advantage of life, um, how much you just have to take advantage of your situation, try to make yourself better, try to make your people around you better, um, you know, tell people around you that that you love them, you know, that's especially you know friends and family and people that 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 you care about you know just because you never know what's going to happen tomorrow you never know what's going to happen uh next week um but that's that's kind of all these jumbled and rambling thoughts that i have uh here this weekend um as i'm watching this uh grammy ceremony here uh, this evening and and uh you know it it was uh Kind of sad, but it is, you know, that Grammy ceremony is really kind of a celebration of music, a celebration of American music. Um, and I think that's how she would want things to be. So I think that is all I have for you here this evening. I think I've uh, I've went on and on enough, um, but I will close out the show here uh, with the big hit from 1986 uh, from my junior high and high school years. Uh, this is the Whitney Hewton Whitney Houston, the greatest love of all. Thank you for uh, joining me here this evening. My name is Mike Savella. Check out the uh, website at familymedicinerocks.com. Give us a follow on our Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter, Dr. Mike Savella. And uh, stay tuned for future shows here on the uh, Blog Talk Radio Network. And uh, you can find out more information of, of our future shows on uh, blogtalkradio.com slash famedrocks. But you can get all the information at FanMedicineRocks.com. Good night from a cold northeastern Ohio. Have a great week, everybody. Good night.
Fulfill my need. Alone, it's 